Hello, and welcome to this episode of Agape Fellowship. Here we read and study the Word of God verse by verse. We are in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount. We are in the Beatitudes, where Jesus gives words of hope to those who are poor, meek, peacemakers, righteous, and so on. And now going to learn further. Thank you for joining us, and it's our prayer that you will be blessed by this lesson. Okay, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. One of the challenges that we have the way the scripture has it today uh, um, is that we've got chapters and verses. There are many benefits of having chapters and verses, but that whole concept of chapters and verses uh, is new. It came up in the 17th century. Before that, it was just text upon text upon text. So when uh, Jesus looked at uh, the scroll of Isaiah, he was not going Isaiah 53 or Isaiah 61 verse 1. That There was no such concept. He opened the scroll, found the place, and he read the Messiah mandate. Um, that's There was no you know, bookmarks like we have. Uh, you cannot tag it. None of that stuff. Um, so this is a new uh, thing that's come lately. Lately, meaning in the 17th century. Now, to make it even easier, what uh, the the folks that printed the Bibles um, and the commentators and whoever does those kinds of things also put headings. So, if you look at your Bible tonight, you will see that after the Beatitudes, there's a little text on top, and then it's as if it's another section. I just want you to know why am I belaboring myself? I want you to know those sections didn't exist. Jesus just spoke the way it is. Okay, and so there is no breakage between Beatitudes and this portion. The last Beatitude that he spoke, the blessedness he spoke, is about uh, rejoice and be exceedingly glad uh, when you are persecuted, because so did you, so so did the prophets before you, um, and uh, they are doing it in my name. And so rejoice and be glad. That's the portion. And right after that, he's saying, "You are the salt of the earth." So understand the relationship between the two, how they're positioned one side by side. If Jesus was just sitting next to us and talking this, he, you wouldn't, he wouldn't break and have a cup of coffee, come back and start a new statement. He was just continuing his thought. So yes, there is persecution, but you're still the salt of the earth. In other words, don't run away from persecution because you, you will receive persecution. Don't run away from persecution because you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then no good, it's good for nothing, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Many think as Christians, we must create our holy huddle. We should create little ghettos and combines and live in quasi-monastic lives. In other words, you know, we have the the centric, you know, the church centric, the that kind of a life. While it is true that we have fellowship with the believers, it is also true that we are called to be salt. We are the portion, we are the peace, we are the salt that adds flavor to society, community, and nation. Jesus did exactly the opposite of what was expected of him. What was expected of him? 
oh, as a rabbi, he would not mingle with, you know, sinners and tax collectors. He would not eat with them. He would not have friendships with the, with the, uh, with these people. He would be in the temple or he'd be mixing himself. He'd be alongside the folks in the temple and righteous and religious people. Jesus did exactly that. He said when, when somebody remarked about that, he said, look, those who are well don't need a doctor. It's only the sick that need a doctor. Remember that that is what the Lord has called us also. Salt in a salt shaker has zero value. You can buy a, a container of salt for a buck, buck and a half, and if it's sat in your shelf, I guarantee your food is not going to have flavor if you didn't open it and put some into your food. I don't have to tell you that. Salt has value only when it is applied or used. So what are the usages if I step back and ask you what are the usages of salt what are the purposes that you see that you have with salt can you name some flavor flavor yes that's the first one we just mentioned flavoring your food okay preservatives preservatives good okay antiseptic good antiseptic you're going exactly by my note that's the three in the row uh, antiseptics, deterrence against critters and bugs. The time, winter time, snow time. Oh, snow to salt the, yes, uh, with, that's the rock salt, yes, good. Um, prevention of, yeah, sorry, say that again. Uh, you can also use it against evil spirits as well, Now, I didn't know that, do you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what else? Well, it, it says that it's good for nothing if, if it loses its saltiness, except to be thrown on the ground and stepped on by men. Now, actually, up in the northern climes, that's a good use. That's a good, that's what, uh, that's what uh, Brother Martin just mentioned. It's used for in the winter time. It's good yeah. use. <laughs> um, Another now, one. Now, Anil, since salt is, is so useful, how come when we have meals at your house, there's never any salt out? <laughs> you have to ask for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, another one is uh, prevention of um, growth, you know, any weeds. If you salt the ground, uh, nothing will grow on that. In fact, I don't know if you know, in 70 AD when Romans decimated the land of Israel, they salted it. Did you know that? They salted the nation. They cut down the cedar trees. There were lots of trees in Israel. Uh, it was green, pretty green at that time. They cut down all the trees in Jerusalem, just made it completely flat and salted the whole region so that nothing would grow. So I've tried it myself. Is you know, If I wanted to empty out some plot of land that I didn't want any weeds to grow. I had two options. One is either buy the uh, the uh, anti-grass uh, um, thing, um, or I could just throw salt on it. I would kill all the um, weeds coming up. Let me ask you, going back to the first question, um, this we had spoken some other place, um, how much of salt do you need to flavor your food? 
I'll give you some multiple choice. A, a bucket. B, a cup. C, a spoonful. D, a few grains. D, a few grains. D, anyone? I could say C or D, correct? Depending on the amount of food, you may need a, a teaspoon of salt or something like that, maybe a little more, depending on what you're cooking. But you would never need a bucket full or a cup full. What am I trying to say? The amount of salt needed to salt a nation is very little. You do not need a bucket full. You need a small tablespoonful or a small group of people that are really committed to the cause. I was reading about the American Revolutionary War, sort of 1775 to 83. The total population at that time was 2.7 million, or 2.8 million, let's say, colonialists. The colonial army at that time was 100,000 people. They were the ones that fought and won the battle against the might of the Redcoats. That's approximately about 3%. 3% of the population were the only ones that stood up for freedom. And they brought America freedom from the uh, King George and his crown. Why am I saying this piece? Jesus holds us accountable for the health of the society, the community, the family. He holds us accountable. If we are the salt, he's reminding us again, look, don't run when persecution come. Don't run because you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, what good is it? In order for salt to be effective, it must retain its saltiness. If a believer does not exhibit values of the salt, you know what I'm saying, values of the Christian values, if the Christian does not stand for the firm principles, rock solid principles that are non-negotiable, if communities, churches, and if societies don't show that, then it will decay. We don't understand how important it is that we firmly hold our values. This is why the other side says, don't bring your religion into the workplace. Okay, I won't bring my religion, but I'll bring my values. If my values are based on that of the Christian ethos, then they will respect and honor that. And if persecution comes, if they fire you, so be it. At least you did this on behalf of God's commandment. And God holds us responsible for that. We cannot, we cannot at any time negotiate. So these values that God has are our values. Must be our values. Nothing else. 
his values must be our values. There are there should be no gray area. None of it. And everything that we say, we do, we act, our thoughts, you know, we put our pocketbook, our wallet, everything that we do must be in line with that. And if we are in line with that, we don't have to talk our religion. We will live our religion. If that is the case, then we will aspire for excellence in every aspect of our life. And where we're not excellent, we'll pursue excellence in those areas. But we've taken Christianity and God principles and we've just leaned on this thing called grace and we said no matter what and we just pull out the grace card out. When do we stop pulling the grace card out and say no this time I'm standing for God no matter what. I don't, I, God has taught me enough that I must stand up with a backbone and I will not pull out my grace card and say oh this time I let it go. If those continental soldiers said, this time I will let it go, there's always going to be a next time when the enemy is going to come up further. There was a line in the sand that the American colonists decided they were not going to accept anymore, which was taxation. And they said, this is too far. I'm not crossing this. I won't let anybody cross. And if you do, I'm going to throw your tea back into the Boston Harbor. There was a time, and God is going to push us until we, God is asking us the question, how much a compromise is a compromise? How much do you want this? How much do you want my principles? How far will you take? How far will grace go before you stand up and say, no, I am for God no matter what. I will sacrifice myself on behalf of God. Not the other way around. Neil? Yes. Um, I know some of us have issues with, for lack of a ter better term, denominationalism, but there is, uh, thinking of Hebrews 10, 25, in that area, there is um, scripture, there are scripture precepts for um, assembling together, being under authority in a group. Uh, church setting, if you will, and um, an order of leadership, an order of di discipleship. When I say order, I mean a process in discipleship. I don't think it can be done virtually to the extent that it could be done either in a small group physical setting or a Bible study in a physical setting first face-to-face where you learn basic principles in scripture for those that are new to the word or new to Christianity and for those that are more mature in the meat of the word can share them and disciple the younger believers. Paul is a, one of the biggest proponents of that. So I, I'm not sure denominational denominations answer that, that issue, but they certainly have changed the world. Uh, by discipling uh, Christian believers, young and old. Mm -hmm. Well, 
there have been look i don't have issues with denominations you know but i pers i myself came out of a denomination and i don't hold to denominations anymore i call myself a post denominationalist if there's such a word it's actually a Jewish brother who told me that, and I, he said, and I was talking about this denominational thing, and he said, so, oh, you're post-denominational. Post I said, I haven't heard that word, but thank you. I'll use it from now on. That's called, that's called um, the new heaven and the new earth. That's called the post-end times. Uh, there's no denominations. There are no, no denominations in heaven. Right. Before that, God's plan is to still have denominations. It's, it's apparent. It's everywhere. Uh Let's come back to the topic at hand, which is okay. about the salt. <laughs> um, so we we are held accountable. Having said that, let's look at Second Chronicles seven fourteen with a new set of eyes. We've read this; everybody knows this, but I want for us to read that one more time in the light of what we've just mentioned pertaining to salt and light. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Notice who is God calling? Whose sins is he talking about? And what is he going to do? Look, it's the believer who has not been acting as salt and light that God holds accountable. It's their sin of not having stood as salt and light that has caused the decay in the land. Today, if America is in this kind of a situation, which it is, then God is calling his people to account. Let's forget the politicians out there. It's those that profess to be his servants, his believers, his followers, his disciples. They are the ones that God is calling into account. And God is pushing that line. He's pushing it. And he's saying, okay, how about if I take that much away from you? How about if I take a little more from you? When will you stop? We gave up the battle many, 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 many years ago. We fell for wealth and comfort and everything that made us comfortable. But while we were getting more comfortable, we were giving up our saltiness. We compromise. And by the way, this is not the first time this happened, even in the first, second, third centuries also. We started to compromise. How did all the stuff that get into the early church, the Roman church, how do you think it got there that way? How do you think it happened to all the denominations that were once adhering and, you know, God-seeking denominations are now dead and there are one or two people in the churches. Accommodation with the world and now. So they have completely given up on theirs, values, 
and have slowly the values of the world you know just seeped in in other words the salt let me put it another way the saltiness was gone but they were slowly losing the saltiness that identified them have you tried I don't know if you've tried this before but let's say you use rock salt in your food and let's say there was a rock salt that didn't melt away have you taken a bite into that by accident if it wasn't there oh man you would know it wouldn't you you would know it right away that you bit into a piece of rock salt that hadn't completely melted out into the food and uh, you know the Himalayan rock salt that you put in the food and all of that um, that you've you 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 know when you bit into it why it had the saltiness and it was you knew it believers that make peace with the world or to avoid you know for different reasons one would be to avoid persecution what happens to them is they render themselves impotent inert valueless deadwood in the corporations in the in corporate america there's something called deadwood and this is one of the things i'm diverting from the main topic but just to give you an example ge uh, Jack Welsh, he took a di dying company called GE. It was dying. Back in the 60s and 70s, it was just going down. Jack Welsh came in and he said, you know what we're going to do every year? We're going to get rid of 10% of our people. And he said, if you're not going to be productive in the company, we're going to help you make yourself a productive American. So we're going to let, let you loose. We'll give you a severance pay, four weeks or whatever it is, so that you can find another job where you can be more productive than you're here. Your productivity in our company is not good, so we will find you another spot somewhere else. You find it, but we will fund that finding time. And that was Jack Welch's strategy, and that's how GE came back roaring. He called them deadwood. Christians are deadwood when there is no value. They don't have something internally. They will go with the wind. They will go with where the water flows. They will just go wherever. They do not have a, they don't know what they believe in. And they just call themselves Christians and uh, have no value. They'll go any which way they want. It's just a matter of persuasive speech. Beware of persuasive speech. Especially if it is not founded on rock-solid Christian biblical foundation. Word. And here's what happens to those that become less salty, shall we say. These, the world also will ultimately reject. They actually gave up their Christian values in hoping that they can become friends with the world. But they will very soon find out that even the world does not want them. An example is the, son, the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son thought, oh, you know what, if I go hang out with my buddies and I got the money and I could be, you know, I could do a lot of good things. But he very soon found out when he had nothing, he was bankrupt and there was nothing that he had anymore. He was, he was like the rest of the guys, they let him go.
So if you hitch yourself onto a horse that is going the wrong way, don't be surprised if you end up there. Thank you, Jesus, for reminding us of our calling to not allow the persecution or the values of the world deter us. We are called to be the salt of the earth. Salt is invisible and used in very small quantities. We are to be salt in our communities, churches, and society. Do join us next week as we continue our study on Jesus' famous sermon. Be blessed.